0: Morning everybody, Uh, welcome to you if you're visiting us, uh, my name is Simon Harris, I'm the minister here and we're going to wander our way through together a a passage, uh, in fact the whole chapter that Alan just read, uh, the first few verses uh, from, so you might like to keep your Bibles open if you've already closed them, such as your habit, the page is 729, thank you very much. And uh, you might like to uh, keep it open, oh there it is, Uh, 728, 729, you might like to keep it open just to make sure that uh, what I say uh, is in there. Isaiah is the tallest of all the prophets, you know that, don't you? Eyes higher than the rest. The people of God have found themselves in a pickle, to say the least. Is it possible for a moment for us to imagine what it's like for them? At the time that Isaiah was speaking uh, these words, or into the situation that Isaiah was speaking, the people of God had suffered a catastrophic calamity. They'd been overrun as a nation by the great might of Babylon, Jerusalem, their holy city, had been smashed and was in ruins. And the temple, that uh, central part of the city around which not only their community, but the whole of their faith was built, was now lying in ruins. And to make it worse, many of the people from uh, Israel had been taken, in fact, the the best, the the, the cleverest, the, the most influential people had been taken out of Israel into Babylon. And that's where they have been for some time by the time the words of chapter 43 of Isaiah are spoken. And there in Babylon, they must have wondered whether for them there would ever be a future. Something so catastrophic had happened, they must have wondered, will they ever recover from this? No doubt many of us have had things in our lives go wrong or topsy-turvy, and we've thought to ourselves in these moments, will we ever live again? Will it ever get back to normal? Will we recover from this particular low ebb? That's where they were. As a people, they'd been wiped off the map, engulfed by this great powerful empire what was it like what was it like for them for Jerusalem the city of God to be in a smoldering heap what was it like for the temple that spoke of God's grandeur and of God's agreement with his people what was it like for that temple to be in ruins Babylonian was, or or Babylon was as pagan as they come. In fact, other parts of the Bible uses the word Babylon as a symbol of wickedness and darkness. Towering over the city of Babylon was the statue of Marduk. In fact, in Babylon there were gods everywhere, small g. They were well into pagan worship and the, the worship of idols. And these gods, wherever they were, on a roundabout, on a street corner, in somebody's home, everywhere you looked, there were these gods. And these gods were given the credit for Babylonian success, for their military might, for their extreme wealth compared to the rest of the world. And so it was for the people of God a crisis of faith. How come Babylon was winning? Were there gods? small g, stronger than our God, big G. How come God's city, big G, was conquered, wasn't their God as powerful as he thought he was? Where is our God now? We haven't even got a temple to worship in. And so the people of God are experiencing this incredible crisis of faith. Crushed marginalized, demoralized, and wondering if what had happened to them had dealt them a fatal blow from which they would never recover. A crisis of faith. Had our God simply not been strong enough to compete with all the idols of the Babylonians? Where is our God now? And I guess it's not too dissimilar to the situation that we find ourselves in today have we not as god's people all been almost completely overrun by a foreign power have we not as god's people been conquered in inverted commas by a secular state have we not been marginalized in the same way so that people don't listen to us anymore are we no longer the center of the village but an institution confined in the minds of many to a bygone era. Are we too not in danger of that same demoralisation, wondering if what's happened to the church in the last 20 or 30 years has dealt to her a blow so deep, so crushing, that she may never recover? There are many commentators in our secular West that will say the church will not recover. The blow has been too strong, the crush too great. Well, what do you think? Can we recover from this low ebb? Will we return from our own exile? Will we rise again as strong as a strong and blazing light to the nation? I don't suspect there is anybody here who's hung around church life for a while who's wondered, maybe it's all over, but the shouting. Would the last person please turn off the lights? That's what these guys felt. They had been a great nation. They had worshipped their God and they had seen their God do incredible things but now all they could see were these Babylonian gods, who by virtue of the fact that the Babylonians were free and they were in captivity, these gods must be surely more powerful than the God we had known and worshipped. So what do you think? What do you think about our situation? Will the church rise again? Or will the glory days of God's people be confined to the history books? Will the empty chapels that are on every street corner from where I come, will they once again be full with resounding kingdom praise? Will our churches in our town once again be full? You would forgive an alien coming to our town, wondering why we have so many churches, for there aren't that many people who want to fill them. Will the prophetic voice of the church ever return or will our pathetic voice so often simply mumble on? Oh. Well, what do you think? These folk in exile, they looked up and they saw these gods towering over them. We look up, well, what do we see? What are, what are the great powers that we see influencing our, nat- uh, our, our nation and our culture? We see the gods of consumerism and secularism and individualism... Three towering gods that stand against everything the church has stood for. We see the towering gods of corporate conglomerates, economically more powerful than governments. Who holds the reins of power these days? The strength of terrorism. We might well ask, where is our God? Will the church rise again? And that's what these people think. And that's what they were wondering. And that's what was on their heart. Do we just settle down here in Babylon, live out the rest of our days, thinking about how it was? Or dare we even believe, lest hope, that we could rise again? So what does God say to people feeling and thinking like that? Well, you've still got Isaiah 43 open in front of you, uh, I, I hope. What does God say when we question the future. What does God say when we think that we've been defeated? What does God say when we think the show is over? All but the final song. Well, verse 1 of Isaiah 43. But now, this is what the Lord says capital L again. Remember Yahweh. This is what the God of heaven and earth says. And and in case they missed it, the one who created you, the one who formed you, this is what he says. Fear not. Hallelujah. Fear not. Do not be afraid. For I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, and you are, Mine, fear not. Were the exiled people in Babylon afraid? They were very afraid, quite frankly. And we are afraid if we look long and hard at what's going on around us. We are afraid that this world seems so often out of control. We are afraid of what terrorists might do. We are afraid of uh, what what our uh, economic instability might bring to our lives. We are afraid about our relationships going belly up. We are afraid of losing our jobs. We are afraid of the way society is breaking down. What kind of world will my grandchildren be born into? Yet God says, do not be afraid. And for some, for some of us as we look at the church and as we look long and hard at the church, I don't necessarily mean here, but just generally, there are many, many, many people that this morning find themselves in churches And they're thinking to ourselves, I wonder if this church will still be here for my funeral. We've all but lost our confidence that the church might ever rise again. And we shield ourselves a little bit here because it's nice to have a room that's full. It's nice to have lots of people to worship with. But let's not kid ourselves about what's happening in the world in which we live. And yet God says, do not be afraid. I've redeemed you, I've summoned you, and I've called you by name, you are mine. And that's our anchor for every turbulent day. You see, maybe there's a right turbulent thing going on in your life right now. This is your anchor. God says, I've summoned you, I've called you by name, and you are mine. And some of you need to hear that in your own personal situation and then there's this context that we're talking about this morning about our confidence in the church we as God's people here in this place and so do God's people in every place need to know every single day we need to know it we need to hear it that the God of heaven has called us summoned us by name we belong to him Babylon might look powerful But as Isaiah chapter 40 will say, and we'll look at that in a moment, just one breath from God and it's gone. The great tower in gods that are over us in our day. One breath from our God and they are gone. So I ask you this morning, when you think about the future of this church, when you think about the future of the church, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Do you hear those words from Isaiah? I've called you by name. You are mine. All my hope on God is founded. Let's stand and sing. Very much. They were looking to one another, and they were, as they looked at one another, this motley crew of people dragged from Israel into Babylon, as they looked around the room, as they looked to one another, as they looked around the city to their own people, they thought, we don't stand a chance here under the might of the Babylonians. As they looked to the Babylonian gods, they thought, we don't stand a chance here. These gods are everywhere. They they are surely more powerful than our God. Look at the ruin that we were in. As they looked at the might of the Babylonian army and their palaces and their imperial structure, they thought, we don't stand a chance here. Were they afraid? They were terrified. What was the point in God saying to them, do not be afraid? You know how pointless that is when you're scared stupid about something, don't you? Who's scared of spiders? who's been told not to be scared of spiders does it help no you know so Isaiah's coming on say hey guys don't be afraid what was the point in saying do not be afraid they were paralyzed by fear could God rescue them they didn't think so could god help them escape the babylonians they didn't think so was their god more powerful than all these gods they didn't think so because if he was why have we been here for so long why are we in this mess now the trouble with babylon was that there were so many gods there was kind of a rivalry amongst the gods you know you might have a god in your home and your next door neighbor might have a god in their home and you'd be going my god's bigger than your god na, 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 na. You know, like we do with lawns and cars and houses and clothes and na-na-na-na-na. And that's what they were going on in Babylon. They were just going around going, you know, my, my God's bigger than your God. And, and Israel were beginning to buy into this. It's like a pecking order for the gods. So if that person's God is bigger than that person's God, well, where does our God fit in? Is he, is he more powerful than that one, but not as powerful as this one? But well, where does he fit? And they were beginning to make all these comparisons. But you always get yourself into trouble when you start making comparisons. A gangster turns up at the door of a Baptist minister's house. Not a deacon this time. And he asked the minister... He says to the minister, would you do the funeral of my brother who's just died? They were both villains and everybody knew it. And and the guy says to the minister, I'll give you 50,000 pounds if you say that my brother was a saint. So the minister prayed for a moment and then took the money and got into his study... And as he began to prepare his sermon in his study, you know, just the Holy Spirit came over him and convicted him and he he couldn't believe what he'd done and, and how did he get himself in this mess. So he's working really hard. How can he say in his sermon that this guy is a saint and still keep the money? The next day the service comes welcomes the congregation, stands up in front and uh, they sing the first hymn and and then he starts to speak. I tell you today, this person that we are burying, he was the biggest liar and cheat and villain and swindler this community has ever seen. Mentally he was on the verge of being sick, morally he was nowhere, he brutalised his employees, he was horrible. But compared to his brother... (laughs) Champion... He was a saint. Uh, And we kind of make these comparisons. Uh, and, And we make comparisons with people about all kinds of things. And these people in Babylon were making comparisons about their gods. And God's people over there were going, well, how big is our God? Where does he fit? In the order of ranking. Is our God big enough, strong enough, powerful enough to rescue us from all these other gods? And we might ask the same question, where does our God fit in the order of gods today? Is he more powerful than governments or not as powerful as governments? Is he more powerful than great corporate conglomerates or or, or not? Where does our God, can he conquer individualism in somebody's life? Can he conquer materialism and consumerism? Or are those gods more powerful than he is? Is he big enough? God may want his churches full on a Sunday, but is he powerful enough to deliver it? God may want transformed lives, people rescued from the grip of (coughs) sin and hell and death, but is he powerful enough to do it? Can he pull it off anymore? Or over the years has he got weaker and his influence slipped from the centre to the margins? Is God big enough? To bring the church back from the exile in which it finds herself. Well, that's why Isaiah is speaking to the people. And uh, in chapter 43, it's just part of a whole series of, uh, of, uh, of sermons that Isaiah is speaking to the people to encourage them. And it really begins in Isaiah chapter 40. So turn with me to Isaiah 40. Would you just back a couple of pages? Have that open in front of you. And what Isaiah is saying, he's saying if you look to the Babylonian gods, you're going to be defeated. If you look to yourselves, you're going to be defeated. If you're into this comparison, is our God bigger than your God? No, 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 no. You're going to be defeated. Because you do not understand what you need to understand about your God. And so he explains it to them here in Isaiah chapter 40. If you look at verse 9, what is it a description? It's not a description about any God, but this is your God. This is about your God, Isaiah wants to say. Let's get back to see quite clearly what your God is like. Not some objective deity, but the God that belongs to you. This is your God. And so as I go through uh, very quickly these verses here in Isaiah 40, remember we're not talking about a God of some other place. Not talking about a God of other people. This is your God, my God, this is our God. And what do we see uh, about him? Well, we see firstly in verses 6 to 8 that he is the Lord of human rulers. All men are like grass. Notice the significance of this. They cannot get over the might of the Babylonians. They're looking at their great temples and their great towers and their great army and they're going, wow. These guys are so big and powerful. Isaiah says, no, stop, 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 stop. Just remember, all men, the Babylonian rulers and their armies, all men are like grass, And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You might look at the Babylonians and go, wow, these guys are great. But compared to God, one puff from God's breath and they are but nothing like the flowers and the grass of the field. People of Israel needed to know that their destiny was not in the hands of these Babylonian rulers, but in the hands of God, whose breath could sweep them off the face of the earth in an instant. Friends, we need to know that our destiny is not in the hands of George Bush or Tony Blair or Gordon Brown. What did he wear when he went to Camp David this weekend? Anybody know? Great discussion this week, because he doesn't do casual Gordon Brown, apparently. Feel for him first meeting with the world's most powerful ruler, humanly, he's told to dress casual. Bless. Our lives are not in their hands. Hallelujah. Our lives are not in the hands of rogue Middle Eastern states. Our hands are not in uh, the hands of the terrorists that Osama bin Laden inspires. We need to hear what Isaiah is saying to these people. Look at all this stuff, if you like, and be impressed by their glory and their power. But it is but absolutely nothing compared to the God who made the world and whose breath can sweep them off the face of the earth in but a moment. He is secondly the Lord of creation, verse 12 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance God is so massive he can put this whole earth in a little weight on the end of a scale you know those scales that you used to have in primary school if you are old enough when he had the little weights and he balanced them each end to see how much it weighed? yeah you did, you're not that young it's, it's that kind of picture and God is so big he can just put the whole universe on a little weighing scale and say oh it weighs that much we think it's so big but compared to God it's so small he's the Lord of history verse 13 who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way in other words who told God what to do Who told God how to organise history? Who? Nobody. He is the Lord of history. He came before it. He will be there at the end of it. He's the Lord of the nations, verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. That weighing metaphor again. They're like, nation, like a drop in a bucket. It's, uh, uh, the image, the metaphor is, is like, you know when you uh, pour out water from a bucket, there are drops that kind of cling to the edge of the bucket, aren't there, that are left in, you kind of have to wipe out with a cloth. The nations that look so big and powerful, they're just the last drop clinging to the edge of a bucket. They are but nothing. One sweep with a cloth, and they are gone. He's the Lord of religions, verse 16. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. What you need to know about Lebanon is that there were loads and loads of forests. If all of these forests were turned into wood, and if all of this wood was burnt on the altars, it would not be enough for our God. He is Bigger than our religion, whatever our religion might be. Verse 18, he's Lord of his competitors. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Stop this ridiculous comparing God to a man-made God. Small g, comparing God to an idol. God has made all this stuff in the first place, Isaiah is saying. You cannot simply say, where is God in the pecking order? He is right outside the pecking order. Hallelujah. He's Lord of the universe, verse 22. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. The image here is of of like drawing a set of curtains. I bet you're posh in your house and you draw your curtains like this. A little string by the side, don't you? Remember the olden days when you had to drag the curtain across the window? That's the image. This universe that we think is just so big and so massive, God just, whoa, he just stretches it out. Just like we close the curtains at night. Lord of the universe. And I love this one. He's Lord of the astral powers, verse 26. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Now this is inspirational. This is preacher's genius. Because the Babylonians worship the stars. And Isaiah's going, don't be fooled. These guys, woo, they worship the stars. Remember, our God made them. Lift your gaze. See who our God is. Remember verse 6, this is verse 9, sorry, this is your God. And so he goes to the summary verse, all very excited, at verse 25. And he says, hey guys, this is ridiculous. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Forget this, your God's bigger than my God. Our God's not even on the scale. He created it all. He's before it, he will be after it. He's above and beyond it. And so Isaiah's saying, stop this comparing. Because the moment you begin to compare your God with something or someone, you diminish him. He is the transcendent outside, he is the other, beyond it all, above it all. The Al Shaddai, the God Almighty. What's Isaiah saying to these people wondering, is our God big enough? Can he get us out of this mess? Yes, our God can. Is God powerful enough? Yes. Is he big enough? Yes. Is he strong enough? Can he liberate and restore exiled people? Yes. Can he liberate and restore exiled churches? I think so. Can his people rise again to be a blazing light as they were always intended to be? Yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because it's dependent on us? No. For one moment, don't look around this place and think it's about us. Then the last person will turn out the light. It is about him. Can he do it? Sounds like a Bob the Builder song all of a sudden, doesn't it? Yes, he can! Sorry about that. <laughs> and, and Isaiah's making exactly the same point in those verses that Margaret read. Flip over now to Isaiah 43. And read these verses again in the light of all that we've just heard from Isaiah 40. And look at verse 9 with me. All the nations gather together and all the peoples assemble. It's, uh, it's, it's like a public inquiry. It's like the government have said, well, whoa, whoa, we're still not sure. Let's hold another public inquiry to find out the truth. And Isaiah is saying, imagine a public inquiry to find out the truth about our God. It's a court that's going to pass judgment on whether God's big enough. And the evidence comes in the form of a question. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? The middle of verse 9. And this refers to the Exodus that's mentioned obliquely in verse 3. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? In our language, which God has ever done anything so unique, so decisive as the Exodus, which was the beginning of the story of God's people, at least in their minds, for many of them, when God rescued them out of Egypt and miraculously took them through the desert and created a new nation for himself? Is there another God who has done that? Answer, no. Who are the witnesses to the fact that there is no other God who has done that. You are people in Babylon. You are the ones privileged enough to know and to see this God who can. Stop looking at these other gods. Stop letting these idols uh, that seem so big in your mind to take center stage of your life. Remember what you know. And when the court is in session about whether God is big enough and the evidence comes for all that God has done, this creator God who's redeemed you out of Egypt and created a new nation, he's the one that has done that, he will do that again. And so he goes on, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Verse 11, I even, I am the Lord, and apart from me, you know this stuff, he's saying, there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. Look at the idols, they do nothing, but I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Our God can. How great is our God. Sing with Me, how great is our God? Every time as we come into land, we remember that when God says, Do not be afraid, it's because He's about to do something quite spectacular. When God said to Mary, Do not be afraid, something quite spectacular was about to happen. When God said to those in Egypt, do not be afraid, something quite spectacular was about to happen. When God said to the disciples after Jesus has been crucified, do not be afraid, something quite spectacular was about to happen. And the same is true here. As he said to the people, do not be afraid, I've called you by name. So something quite remarkable was about to happen, and he asks them by faith to begin to look and to see what God is already doing. See, I am doing a new thing. If they were still looking at the Babylonians, and if they were still looking at the idols, and if they were still going, who's God's bigger than your God, and all that stuff, they would miss the new thing that God was doing. See, look, I'm doing something new. Now it springs up, do you perceive it? It's really important that as God's people, we are always looking to him and we are looking with the eyes of faith to see what he is doing. If this church is to rise and make a difference, we must keep fixed on him and we must see sometimes uh, uh, by faith uh, and sometimes what's beginning to happen, what's beginning to stir in the Holy Spirit, what he's doing and we must fix our gaze on it. So I'm going to ask you, You can think about this by yourself. You can chat about this with your neighbour. What are the signs of hope among us? What are the signs of hope in our community right now? Where are the streams in our church beginning to flow in fresh ways? If God is doing something new in our church, what is it that he's doing and do you see it? If you don't normally uh, worship here and you're part of another church, ask it about. Your church, that's fine. What are the signs of hope? Go. You've got two minutes. Go.
1: Assistant, does anyone want to share what they were saying? Something exciting or something new? Or I have a microphone. Put your hand up. Okay, Simon, they're not talking to me. Shall I just pick on some people? It's because it's me. Go on. John
0: John said, said, (laughs) and and I I wasn't there, so I don't know, but he said that the last church meeting was not boring.
1: Why wasn't it boring, John? Say that again.
0: Because loads of new stuff's happening. Do
1: you remember any of it?
0: Oh, um, about six people came into membership. Yeah. Um, the new church secretary, a hmm? uh, couple new things going on. Julie's doing something, Kerry's doing something, hmm? um, the new guys coming to work with us. Loads of stuff.
1: I think John said some good things. Can I, miss- Can I recap? We had six new members, I think. Was it six? <laughs> That's amazing, and that's not just like this month. Every month we've been having new people come to our church, new people becoming Christians. I think that's pretty cool. Julie's thing. Julie's are going to be our head of evangelism. That's quite exciting. Adrian's our new church secretary. Kerry's running a course called Redeeming Eve that's going to hopefully help all us women understand who we are in Christ. I think there's a few things. Anyone else? What have I said the all? Heather, anything exciting happening for you? through prayer ministry really incredibly people are finding freedom in new and different ways that they thought was never possible yeah. Peter come on
0: yeah we're seeing our church expand with the new annex yeah three quarters of a million pounds worth of new building hmm. that's quite
1: exciting anyone else Simon did you have any
0: <laughs> all of the time the bible says see or god says through his word see what i'm doing and get in the flow of what i'm doing you know uh, uh, of, often it's like i'd really like you to do this lord will you help me to do it it's always the other way around in the bible this is what god's doing get in the flow of what god is doing see i'm doing new things now it springs up i'm making a way in the desert streams get involved Get in the flow of what I am doing. I had down on my list here about God healing people from the inside out, seeing God do some remarkable things in people's lives over these last months. On the 2nd of September, we will pray here in church for five new people starting significant ministries in our church. That's what God is doing. And we need to uh, see what he's doing uh, and get in with what God is doing. Uh, Do you see what God is doing drawing all of us around a common value? He's increasing our passion for lost people. He's increasing together as a community our desire to grow deeper in him. Do you see what God is doing when more and more people are saying, I've discovered what my part is to play in this community? Do you see what God is doing when that hunger for his presence is lifting our faith and calling us to raise our game. And what's it about? Is it about us? No. Is it for our own sake? No. It's that we might be, as in verse 21 of Isaiah 43, that we might be a people that proclaim his, his praise. That's what he's doing. He'll get the glory, and as uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 118, It'll be marvellous in our eyes. So do you see what God's doing? Look for what God's doing. Not just in our church. Look for what God's doing in your home and with your family. Look what God's doing in your workplace. See and get involved. I'm coming to the conclusion that life's too short now for me to sit on the fence and try and persuade God to get involved in my game it's his game. And he says to every single person in this room, here is a game, the stakes are an issue of life and death. Here is a game, and you can be part of it. But if you're looking at the powers, and if you're looking at the idols, and if you're looking at everybody else, if you've taken your gaze off who our God is, you'll think it's not possible, and you'll stay on the touchline. Get involved in the game that we might be a people that proclaim his praise, that it might be indeed marvellous in our eyes. Let's stand and pray together, shall we?